are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration and the new world order. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Hey, Rod, how are you doing today? Uh, not so good today, Lee, but I still can't complain. How about yourself? Well, now, now, are you not doing so good because you're going to be sentenced to four months in jail and get a $6,500 fine? Uh, somebody close related to me might be uh, something like that on that route my, today. My, my ex-boss, yes. Steve, Steve Bannon, of course, we're making fun of. But uh, I will say this. He got off light on the fine. They wanted to find him $250,000. So he got away with $6,500, which is about what Steve likes to make in a day. Because you know that, right? When I was a reporter at Breitbart, I think I was making about what you're making now as producer on the show, or possibly a little less. And Bannon was making $80,000 a week. So if there's any point, Rod, where I get a raise to $80,000 a week and you don't, and you your income stays the same, feel free to make fun of me when I go jail. Does that make sense? Yeah, deal? No. Yeah, that's a, that's a good deal, Lee. Yeah, and it's, I do feel now, I got to say, we'll talk about it after the boom. Let's talk about the great show you put together for us today. First off, in the first hour, our friend Ted Rawl, our friend on the left, Ted Rawl, artist, entrepreneur, bon vivant, Ted Rawl, first hour. Second hour, to close out the week, the great Carter Laren. It's always fun when Carter's on the show, so we'll talk to him next hour. Now, Rod, do the honors, please, of taking us out with a boom. You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. So I'm done making fun of Steve, kind of. That was as far as I went, and that wasn't much. But uh, Bannon... Although I'll say that when he goes to j- jail for four months, which he's scheduled to, he's going to appeal. But do you think his appeal is going to succeed or do you think he's going to spend four months in jail? That's a good question, Lee. Um, I would say mm, if I'm being realistic, no, but I would but I would uh, like the. Uh, uh, to say that I think his appeal has validity, so I, I would like it to, you know, for him to win that. Because he wasn't able to present a case, actually. You know, Bannon was screwed here. Yeah, that's but, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like just, just on a legal matter, not you know, you know, I don't have any personal feelings to Steve Bannon. I'm just saying on the legal, legal, legal sense. I believe I've made this joke before, but when he goes to jail, one thing we know for sure is that his wardrobe will improve. He'll start dressing better in jail because you know he dresses very badly in public. So no, he, can, uh, he can just use his commissary to get more undershirts. So he'll be good. <laughs> yeah, that he's the kind of guy who did you see the film Goodfellas? We've talked about John and I talked about it many times. The Marshall says he filmed Goodfellas. Remember the way the mob guys lived in jail where they had food brought in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they were cooking uh, spaghetti and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, see, with the money Bannon has, he could afford to have food brought in, I'm going to say. And he's the kind of guy who 
could figure out how to have someone sneak him a cell phone. So he can, I he wouldn't be surprised. A, he'll take over a whole cell block just by buying it off. Yes, indeed. Because, by the way, I think he's, I think he's fairly safe from sexual assault in jail. And uh, you know, you know, no one ever talks about the sexual assault part, but it's real. But I think Bannon's got his looks going for him in that case. He doesn't seem, especially Steve Bannon, is no Milo Yiannopoulos. Milo would be a mess afterwards. Does that make sense? Right, right. But but Steve's not exactly your dream cellmate if you're in jail. He probably snores too, just a guess. I, I don't know. I've never slept in the same room with him. He always do you know what else he used to do? This is a true story. He used to stay so for instance, let me give an example. The RNC in Cleveland in two thousand sixteen. Okay, the Republican National Convention, the the Breitbart staff, of which I was one, I was a writer and a lead reporter. Okay, we were at a hotel, forty five minutes outside of Cleveland, away from downtown Cleveland, and that's if the traffic was good. So we were at a hotel way the hell out. Bannon was at the Ritz-Carlton downtown. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, this, that's wild. Now, in, in, this is also a true story. Although we were at a hotel 45 minutes outside of town, way, way out in the suburbs or something like that. Do you know who was staying at our hotel? Mm, Chuck no. D. Chuck oh, D. really? Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. I just missed meeting Chuck D., which would have been from Public Enemy, of course. But Chuck D and uh, his band and Tom Morello, the guitarist, who was with Rage Against Machine and later Audio Slave, Tom Morello and Chuck D were staying. They couldn't even get where Steve was in the Ritz. So I just missed them. Uh, the front desk told me, you know, I went down and I said, yeah, they just checked out. They were in the van, and you just missed them by five minutes. I said, rub it in. But that's a true story. So that's why Bannon rolls. So, but you know he's the first person to be convicted of contempt of Congress since the 80s. I believe 83. Yeah. If, um, Eric Holder, I think, I know Eric Holder was in, in contempt of Congress, and uh, I believe Loretta Lynch as well. But so, but you know, they get to walk off scot free, and in Loretta Lynch's case, uh, put videos inciting violence, talking about they need to be blood in the streets. So, yeah, and also, there's lots of people who, you know, Bannon didn't talk, but he didn't get to say why. He was under advice of counsel. He was not, you know, you know, and I believe. Council had a solid argument, but he's the first person to be convicted of that. But we know people have lied to Congress. Bill Browder famously sat down and lied his ass off to Congress, right? And also we know people with the CIA have also lied. Clapper, I, I forget who Clapper was with, but the deep state. NSA, I believe. Yeah, thank you. James Comey as well. 
Yes. So lying to Congress is okay. That's not showing contempt. But not showing up, you're in a cell with Bannon for four months. Now, four months is not what the government wanted. They want six months for Steve. But, you know, and you know what usually happens in cases like this? By the time Steve has to go to jail, it will be probably two months. They'll find stuff to give him time served. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's got he's got good enough lawyers for that. Yeah, they, they usually the amount of time Steve will have to do is probably no more than two, two months is my guess, because they'll say that a certain amount was time served. But, uh, you know, and, and that's not so bad, if that makes sense. And I think this is going to make Steve Bannon a martyred hero to a lot of people on the right. You agree with that, Rod? Oh yeah, he. Oh yeah, he's definitely going to make money off this, and you know, obviously, uh, campaign with uh, politicians that he likes and endorse. So he's going to come out uh, stronger after this. By the way, uh, I should point out: Have you been following our Rumble feed? Yesterday, when we had uh, uh, Tyler Nixon on, he was following our Rumble feed. He was in the chat room. Have you been following our Rumble feed during the show, Rod? Yeah, I've been starting to leave the last couple of days. I was talking about it with uh, with our engineers as well. So yeah, I've been I've been starting to follow it. It's actually going very well. We're getting more and more viewers in there every day. If anyone sees me in the Rumble chat room, it's not me. It's my girlfriend, Danny. She goes in under my account. There's nothing, you know, it's not kinky. Don't get your hopes up. But I'm just saying, you might wonder why you see me in the chat room. And the reason you see me, you, yeah, is Danny's in there as me, because she likes watching it. And she's been telling me the chat room's going very well. Uh, what do you think, Rod, of how the chat room's going on Rumble? Oh, I haven't been, I've been, I've been just starting to follow it, I think, like two days ago. And then, you know, Tyler was, uh, you know, reading the comments out from, uh, I forget, Mark something is his name on rumble so yeah I'm, I'm starting to look at it now as well. who's your mark <laughs> yeah who's your mark yeah whose name i didn't understand before i thought it was who's your mark which makes sense because it kind of sounds like it but no he's the guy from brett kimberlin's home state indiana should we call mark serial bomber mark is that a good name no 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 <laughs> okay I don't, think, I don't think he has anything to do with it <laughs> You're right. He had nothing to do with it. But Brett Kimberlin was a Speedway bomber from Indiana. Speaking of our great audience, by the way, and I do love our audience, one of our caller family, the great Owl Killer is on the line. 202-521-1320. Owl Killer, what is on your mind? So I, I really want to get into um, what you and Rod were talking about yesterday um, regarding Epstein. But as far as the Steve Bannon thing goes, I think this I, – I, I really think that right now that the establishment and the New World Order, um, they're, very, they're very scared that they can't, they can't keep the genie in the bottle anymore. And that's what I think. If, if they were confident in their, in their power and in their strength – who you're going to really put Steve Bannon in contempt, uh, in jail for contempt? 
you're really going to, I mean, because he, that, him not being able to represent himself, that seems to be the new tactic because in all those show trials with Alex Jones, where they just default him, he literally is unable to say that, no, that's not what happened, or that's not what I said, or that's not what I meant. And that's the new tactic has been that you, you're, you're unable to, um, you know, voice your opinion. And Ingrid was saying the other, um, when she called in yesterday um, about Assange and how, uh, like, she's worried about the jury nullification process, my understanding, and, and like, if you encourage people to nullify the jury, that you can be on charge for that. My understanding of jury nullification is the jury, even if the person is guilty of what they're saying they're guilty of, the jury can nullify the law, meaning that that law is unjust. That 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 has always been my uh, understanding of uh, jury nullification. So I, I I would like some clarification on that. Um, getting in. Well, someone should buy a billboard in Virginia explaining jury nullification in one or two sentences and put that billboard up so everybody driving down the one or something like that, the Lee Highway, they change the name because you can't have a highway named Robert E. Lee, apparently. But let me let me put you on the spot, Al Keller. I'm coming up with a new way of judging people, okay? It's a percentage that they are globalists. So, for instance, Joe Biden is, I would say, 100% globalist, right? You agree with that one? Yep. And Alex Jones, I would say, is 10% globalist because he is an advocate of Israel. And so he's a little pro-Zionist for me sometimes. So, But 10% is a low rating, right? So... Do you agree with Alex being maybe ten percent globalist? I, you know, I, I think he did. I with if that's the if that's the yardstick, yeah. But I think he just doesn't want to rattle that cage. I agree with that, and I also think, look, it's it's hard to get through this world right now without a little global stank rubbing off on you. Does that make sense? This is a world that is very hard for someone. You have to really, really, really do your research, and Alex does, but there are, are other pressures, as you point out. So I would say Bannon, so Trump, I would say, is about 33% globalist, because he's way all in on Israel, for instance. And that's not the only standard, but I, he, he supported sanctions against Russia. So I say he's, you know, 30% globals, but he does have a lot of fight against it. I'd be willing to go 40%, maybe. What do you think of Trump on the scale percentage globals? There's no, there's no wrong answer, by the way. It's just it's an opinion. Yeah, you know, I, I think I don't think you're wrong with the 33%. I think he wants to be the globalist. That's I think his idea of globalism is different. Like he wants to be we're the shop, we're the only shop in town. He doesn't want to tell her you, but he wants to. Provide. You you've hit on you've hit on something. Kordakovsky described Trump as the head of the alt establishment. Yeah, right. And I think that Kordakovsky was very astute in that assessment in his understanding of the world. By the way, Kordakovsky's, you know, 
90 to 100 percent. So what percentage would you put by Bannon? Forgive me. Steve Bannon. What percentage of globalists is Steve, do you think? It depends. It, it depends on the Steve Bannon that talks at CPAC or the Steve Bannon uh, that's in the White House. The Steve Bannon. Uh, fuse them together into one personality because they're the same person. So I'm trying to acknowledge by this standard that some people can be, you know, a person being a certain percentage globalist, I'm not going to criticize them and say, in other words, my standard is not if you're 1% globalist, screw you. Does that make sense? I'm willing to accept a certain amount of that. Uh, but would give, I would give on that. I would say he's about 25%, but hear me out. The reason I say he's about 25% is because yeah, he's the, if you're going to put Trump in with, if, if Israel, if not necessarily, if Zionism is a, is one of the uh, metrics, then he's as much, he's as much a Zionist as Trump is. And he's the one that brought in all those generals and Mike Pompeo and all those people surrounding Trump. And Bolton. And Bolton. Bannon brought in Bolton, too. So I would say, I would say maybe, and he also works for a Chinese billionaire. And the reason he's anti-CCP in the China thing is that he works for a billionaire. He was arrested on the yacht. Yeah. I've never been arrested on a yacht. I've never been on a damn yacht. Have you, Al Killer? Do you spend a lot of time on yachts? Not at all. I, I, I've seen him. I've, I've seen him in person, but that, that's about as close to a yacht as I've gotten on. Um, the reason I, I would give him about a quarter is because he is, again, I think he's that all establishment as well. And the reason I say that is he's way harder than Trump is on tariffs. He's way harder on Trump is on uh, border security. He's way less interventionist than Trump is foreign policy-wise. He even said, oh, yes, Ukraine, the javelins was not a good idea. So, And I, I know that to be true because I've had, I'm in a unique position. I've talked to Bannon, just the two of us, privately a number of times. You know, we were friends at one point. And he has no reason to lie to me one-on-one. Does that make sense? He's not putting on a show. He's not on mic. And I think he legitimately is that. But I also think that he's one of those guys, you're right, he is all establishment. He understands how power works in, in Washington and the world. So he has to be on that side. But I, I'd say it's somewhat higher. My point here, back to your original point, they do not want even any percentage of non-globalists. The only thing that's acceptable to the new world order is you're 100% globalist or a Putin puppet. Does that make sense? Even a person who's a 90% globalist, and I'd, I, I'd have to think, I don't know who that would be. That's not enough. They're petrified of even Bannon, who sucks up to them a little bit. You see my point? Is that this, this, I'm agreeing with what you said. They're so desperate that they have to stop even Bannon, who isn't really a, a threat to the New World Order. Do you see what I'm saying, Al Killer? Definitely, but I, I think he is. 
think he, Bannon is a hired gun, man. That, that's really what I think he is. And where, and he's very good at what he's doing right now. Um, he, he, if you think I, him and Alex both are on, I, I would say Alex may, may be, is ahead of Steve Bannon in terms of timing, but Bannon gets the, Bannon gets the globalist game and he, he, he's been, he understands it. And he, the way he breaks it down is where I like the humor that Alex puts into stuff, but Bannon is for the more serious person that they can't necessarily handle because Alex gets into, you know, the spiritual side of things. And did you see what they did to Laura Logan? She's not allowed on Newsmax anymore after her interview with Eric Bowling yesterday. Really? No, I, I did not see that. What happened? So the remember I brought up probably a week ago, the president of Mexico said that he had been proposed uh, a plan to merge Canada and Mexico with the United States into a regional government government. And Laura Logan said that about a year ago, and she brought it up again uh, yesterday that she had somebody that she says she has the documents that infiltrated the United Nations. And she says right to the top. And that was the proposal was, and that's why the border has been left open and that they know there's between 50 and 60 million illegals and they want about a hundred million. And, she she said, and the people that are that are proposing this global governance, she brought up Yuval Noah Harari by name, and said that the people that are telling you that eat insects are drinking on are feasting on the blood of babies. Now, obviously, you know you could take that one or two ways. You know that that could be like theatrical, like just in just saying like they're just being decadent, or you could take it that that's really what those people do. But either way. Newsmax banter, but the fact that is that there's no way around it anymore. That that, that the global government's in your face, and when when you when you were bringing up Epstein yesterday with uh, Rob, I you know that is the guy that connects everything. That's the guy that after after he's jailed, Bill Gates is is meeting with him and doing business with him. That you know he has ties to Bill Clinton and to Trump. Well, I don't. I don't think Trump was on the island. I think if he was, that would have already been all over. Everybody knows that Clinton was on the flights over there. Um, Trump, I believe, he was on his jet twice, and they were both from New York to Florida. Um, well, also the the other thing about Trump, I'll just mention this. You you know Al Killer, but Trump is the only guy who cooperated with the police against Epstein. And he threw the he threw Epstein, he banned him from Mar Lago, right? You know that, and I I find that significant. I think Trump was a guy who sort of knew, obviously, from things he said, he knew Epstein liked younger women. I don't think he knew how young. I have no evidence of that, and no reason to believe it. And also because some of the people Epstein hung out with were, let's say, 19 or 20-year-olds, right? Right. And while that's, you know, and I say this as a guy whose girlfriend is 24 years younger than him, but uh, I think there's a difference between dating a 33-year-old at my age and a 20-year-old. Does it make sense? Yep, definitely, 100%. Now, what I... Yes. Who... That that's I I'm wondering 
You know, this is, it just has me thinking. Is the, imp, you know, could you imagine what would be going on if Assange was, was free right now and he, he was able, uh, WikiLeaks was still active? Do you know how devastating he would be to um, something like what, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? I, I think they they came to a, a point where they're like we can we cannot take any more we can't take any more cuts because we're going to bleed out and that's why I think they've gone so hardcore on the censorship and and so hardcore I, something the, the F- against Assange as well. Hey, hey Al Killer, we got to go. Great call as usual. Thanks so much. Great call. Have a great weekend. Okay, now. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, joining us from a small island off the coast of the United States, the great cartoonist, author, and bubble vivant, Ted Rawl, after this short break on The Backstory. backstory and on the radio in the capital of the empire of lies washington dc 105.5 fm am 1390 joining us now is a great friend of the show a great analyst also artist and author and bon vivant i'll try it again bon vivant that's french is hard after a stroke i must say that ted how you doing today i i'm pretty good lee how are you doing i'm doing great so it's great to have you on a Friday show. And let's, before we talk about the issues of the day, let's talk business, okay? Okay. So I actually went to your site, rawl.com, because I was, uh, I want to get a caricature, caricature of me done, a drawing of me done. Okay. And I couldn't find where on the site I do that. I can oh. find where I can buy your graphic novels and so on, but I couldn't find the part for the caricature. It, where is I that, should, Taz? I should make that clear. I, I mean, I just assumed that people would just reach out to me through the contact uh, page. So they would just click contact and shoot me an email. Okay, yeah, I'll do that then. So I've tried to make it easy for you too, Ted, by dressing ridiculously and yet consistently, you know, every day now I've been wearing a tie-dye shirt and a Cuban shirt over it, a baseball cap usually, and glasses of some kind. So does a person having a consistent look, even though a ridiculous one, help you as a caricature artist? 100%. Like, I like the fact that Trump always wears the same color tie. Like, that's great. You know, I don't have to look him up, um, and it, it it makes him more recognizable, or her in the in in any case. Uh, you know, when people look at the at the drawing, you know, obviously, if the person always dresses the same, uh, the clothes become part of their branding, and uh, it's it's frankly easier and less work for the cartoonist or illustrator. Now, uh, looking at the news, uh, we are now two and a half weeks. From the election, the midterm elections. And tell me, did I miss the Democrats 
they're acting like they're running against Donald Trump. And he, as far as I know, Donald Trump is not on any ballot in the midterms. Am I correct on that, Ted? That, if he is, I, I have missed that story. So do you think their strategy of running against Trump is going to backfire horribly? Do you think the Democrats are really facing, as we get closer to it, make your bold prediction, are the Democrats really facing as bad a drubbing as they seem to be facing? Uh, yeah, no, they are. I mean, it looks like they're going to lose probably at least 20 seats in the House of Representatives. Control of the Senate seems almost impossible to hold on to. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be they're going to suffer blowback. I just think it's just not going to help. So in that sense, they could have been communicating along uh, lines that might have been more might have been effective. Uh, you know, I don't think running against Donald Trump is going to hurt anything because Donald Trump supporters aren't likely to vote Democratic anyway. But and I don't think it really affects swing voters because swing voters might not be that into Donald Trump anyway. Donald Trump is a base candidate or uh, he's a base figure, but uh, no pun intended. But when you're looking at, you know, will this bring in new votes? Will it excite the base? I don't think it's going to excite the base. I mean, you, the Democrats, you can tell, are starting to realize that the progressive base is not that into this, which is why, belatedly, they have Bernie Sanders out on the campaign trail, um, and, and they're trying to excite the base about stuff like abortion and uh, student loan forgiveness. But, eh, you know, I mean, they should have done that earlier. And the problem is that progressives know that all this stuff is symbolic. You know, the chances of the student loan, the student loan thing didn't go as far as they wanted. Uh, there's no talk whatsoever about a higher minimum wage, which is something that progressives have wanted for a long time. And there's no talk of like free college, which is something that Biden had mentioned during his campaign and isn't happening. And there's no talk at all about fixing the Affordable Care Act, which is frankly a disaster. So, um, you know, I think I think it, the, these elections are about motivating, energiz energizing the base, and this part. And the Democrats are not as good at that in general as Republicans are, and and certainly this cycle is just a repeat of that. And and Ted, do you think? Okay, so on the soon, 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 forgive me, on the student loan forgiveness. What chance do you think is there that anyone's going to see a dime from that? What do you think the odds are that anyone's going to see a dime? In other words, there are numerous states that are challenging it in the courts already. And even Biden says, well, I may have some trouble with the courts. Biden's saying that. What percentage chance do you think there is that anyone's going to see one thin dime from that, Ted? It's I'd say five or ten percent chance, maybe. Um, you know, the I, I think the core challenges are part of the issue, but the bigger part is just simply the fact that Joe Biden's going to be a lame duck duck as of uh, early next year. The House of Representatives will be in Republican hands. They can act to keep to gum up the works on this. Uh, it's you know, it, it's it, it's an executive order. If Biden wanted to get this done, he would have had to make it a fait accompli at this point. He would have had to run it through last early last year and start getting checks cut to the point where it would have, Republicans would not have been able to run against it because it, the money would already be gone and it would already have been too popular. Um, 
it's just it's symbolic. I don't think I don't think anyone's going to see any money. What do you think, Lee? I think it's about, uh, I would say, you know, 5%, 10% what you said. And the reason is because I would never say 100% because it doesn't work that way. The the world has surprises, but I'd say it's a very, very low percentage. So I agree with you. It's about 5 or 10%. I also think that it's the kind of thing where if if for instance, you get it, your next door neighbor is going to be pissed because he's he or she is not going to get it. Does that make sense? It's the kind of thing, it's not everybody getting the money. It's only certain people. And it's not just based on income. It's also based on the type of college that you went to. Or let's say you went to college 20 years ago and you paid off your student loan. Your neighbor getting that money back or saving that money or however you want to put it is only going to piss you off. Maybe not you specifically because you're a very nice guy and magnanimous, Ted. But do you see my point that a lot of people are going to be pissed about that money going to someone else? Yeah, Lee, you're right. I mean, you're right about both things. Personally, I'm all for it, even though I paid off my student loans a long time ago. But I agree, this is a recipe. It's a recipe for resentment. And objectively, it's a bit of a regressive thing. I mean, I'm in favor of it, but it is regressive. I mean, most people who, uh, you know, poor people are less likely to go to college than rich people. And that even people who, you know, took out student loans and might even still owe them are, tend to be from a higher uh, financial class than people who, who didn't or weren't able to. And those taking out those loans on average in the aggregate allowed them to get better paying jobs uh, overall. So it's definitely like a, you know, it's a, it's a subsidy for the middle class and the upper middle class. But on the other hand, I mean, rich people don't take out student loans. They don't need them, but uh, they pay cash. But, you know, it's a, uh, I agree. I, I mean, I think it's divisive. Um, you know, I think it's not a bad thing to have some subsidies for the middle class because so much of the welfare state is dedicated to corporate welfare for the rich and welfare welfare for the poor. So, you know, middle class Americans, they pay into the system. They don't usually get much out. This is something for them. But, you know, it's even within that, that category, it is a little weird that, you know, someone who took a, you know, a moonlighting job to, to pay off their student loans early is kind of being penalized after the fact in favor of uh, their prodigal sons who, you know, who didn't do that. And now they're going to, they would get bailed out. Although I think it's an academic argument since, as you say, you know, it's, it's not likely to happen. So I would say they would be better off politically. And I'm not saying I, I'm in favor of this and I'm just blue-skying this idea. So there's all kinds of problems with it. But you agree with me that politically it would have been a better idea if they'd said, we're offering anyone who has a college degree our Hero of U.S. Education Award, and they'll get a check for $2,000. Anyone who went to college, right? You know, $2,000. Rather than some people getting 20 and some people getting zero. Ted, what do you say? I, I think, you know, I would be more into some a, a system that would be kind of complicated of a means testing thing. Cause you know, look, if you're, if you're making $500,000 a year, you know, you don't really need or deserve that $2,000. Whereas someone who's struggling, 
uh, you know, don't forget a lot of people who own student loan who owe student loans are people who dropped out of college. Uh, they weren't able to finish, and that yet they still owe the loans. People like that who are struggling, uh, I'd want to see them get more. So, you know, I think a means testing thing. I mean, I think student loans are a blight. I think they should be abolished in favor of grants. I think the United States should become like the rest of the world where college doesn't become, you know, you shouldn't have to borrow the price of buying a new house to go to college. Uh, but, you know, so this is kind of like part of raising awareness of that. And, uh, you know, but the system's out of control. It's it's also, if we're going to have a student loan system, I don't know what you think about this, Lee. I feel like if you're going to have student loans, they should not charge you, um, they shouldn't make a profit on them. You know, they should just be uh, whatever the, uh, the the cost of, of the funds is to the bank, uh, plus just the cost of servicing the loan, uh, but no profit. It should, you know, no one should be making a profit off student loans. Well, so I, I'm not a big advocate of college anyway. Full, full disclosure, the last grade I finished in school was eighth. I went to college for a little bit, and uh, when I was 15 and 16, but I did not graduate college. And looking back, I I can honestly say that nothing in my career was due to what I learned in college. Really, I would have the same career if I had not attended college at all. Are you? I'm not judging, therefore, Ted. But are you a college graduate? I, I am. I'm a, I have a. I had a long and tortured history of college. I uh, I went to uh, engineering school for three years, and then they expelled me. And then I returned for one last year, but not. But as a history major, which is what my degree is in. So I had. But there was a six-year interregnum between those two uh, things. And uh, you know, <laughs> I got to be honestly. I mean. I, I personally don't do anything that I needed my college degree for at all uh, in order to do my job. I mean, I didn't learn anything about cartooning or political punditry or anything. Um, I would say that it definitely gave me some interesting liberal arts education that I, I'm able to draw upon uh, you know, in my writing, uh, sort of in, indirectly, it's about the way, it's about logical reasoning. I think I've learned a lot about, but yeah, you don't really, it's not really job training. Well, for me, I, I learned, uh, how to have lunch with liberals without getting beat up because <laughs> I went to, I went to a place called Simon's Rock of Bard College in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is part of Bard which you're familiar with up in New York. And uh, so it was all liberal arts education. And, you know, I read some good books on the road. I read there. And uh, so and I, I had many, fr but I'm, I was a libertarian at 15. So you can imagine how much fun I had dealing with people at Bard. So we, although we it's, learned it's beautiful much. there, uh, I hear up there in the, in the Berkshires. Indeed it is. It's a beautiful country. And later my dad was a golf pro at the country club in Grant Barrington, Massachusetts. So my parents sort of lived there later in life, which is interesting. That part of Massachusetts is incredibly beautiful. And it's kind of a fun place to live. Although Simon's Rock is famous for two things. 
One of the Cone brothers went there. I think both of them, actually. The directors, the Cone brothers went there. And Ronan Farrow went there. Not at the same time as me, but uh, those are celebrities. And Simon's Rock was one of the first school shootings. A person brought a rifle to school and went through the school and started killing students, other students. And that was... I believe in the 90s, so long before the rash of school shootings. Does it make sense, Ted? Yeah, although I, we don't forget University of Texas at Austin, the the you know the Watchtower, the the Watchtower, yes, which I also lived by later in life, and you know that that story is interesting because of course you know they later found out the person who did the shooting had a giant brain tumor. Right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's fa- it's fascinating because in his uh, in his suicide note, right? He said, "I know you know this, Lee." They said that he said, "You know, I think there's something wrong with me. Uh, I wish that you would there would someone would study me, or maybe I don't know if he specifically requested an autopsy or not." But he said that he suspected that there was some kind of physical ailment affecting him and in fact it's been it's pretty much probably true that he the tumor was a, was pushing on parts of his brain that affected his judgment and kind of drove him to do that and so i don't want to sound facetious but th- those were the days when shootings like that at least made s- some s- sense in other words you could say what caused this and answer giant gall pulse-sized brain tumor, apparently. <laughs> although although no one knew that for, for decades. No, right. But nowadays, the school shootings are scary because there's so uh, no, no reason behind them. Does that make sense, Ted? Well, there's no known, there's no obvious reason, but I th- I think the reasons are pretty clear, really. I mean, I think, don't you think? I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's alienation. It's, you know, alienation from a society where it's increasingly hard to, you know, you're, you're to make a name for yourself. And if you feel like you're a quote unquote loser, uh, you know, some people respond to that with rage. Uh, some people turn it against themselves um, become suicidal. Other people become homicidal. I don't know. I don't. I think it's you know. It's not. There's not a lot of well-adjusted people who are do who are committing these these murders. Well, and I'll say this again. I'm not someone who likes to blame entertainment media for things, but I think that the I'm not going to even try to say that word, but the growth of violent video games. I was going to say proliferation, and that's not a good word for me to say, but uh, because I can't get it out. But the growth of violent video games has produced people who are used to realistic violence and without consequences. And some of these school shootings, clearly they're treating it like a violent video game. Does that make sense, Ted? If well, you, you know, it's funny. Respect. That used to be that opinion used to be like a like sort of considered like fringe right wing, but I, I think it's turned out to be true. I mean, there's uh, d- d- uh, Lieutenant uh, 
Robert Grossman wrote a book that I highly recommend called On Killing. Uh, and he talks at length about, uh, he discusses the uh, t- training in the army and, um, and basically how uh, the big effort after World War II was to try to turn uh, soldiers into more efficient killing machines so that they wouldn't spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not to shoot at the enemy. They just would. Um, because they found that like 95% of all shots fired during World War II were fired as to cover, as covering fire, not to fire at the enemy. So during the 50s and 60s, uh, they changed things to make it more rote with like those shooting ranges where the the figure pops, the plywood figure of the of the mother or the fa- or the or the enemy soldier pops up and don't think, just shoot. And um, in, as the military became more sophisticated in the 80s and 90s. They moved to violent video games, shoot 'em ups, uh, in order to uh, inc- continue that trend. And the th- Grossman's theory, and, and he's definitely not like a soft liberal, is that uh, this kind of not taking the agency of whether or not to shoot at the enemy directly at their body uh, and sort of making it automatic is what's contributing to PTSD among veterans because uh, they don't get to really process like you know the decision used to be oh is this this person's coming against me i know my commanding officer says to shoot him but do i really want to is this person really a threat to me or to my buddy uh you know maybe i will maybe i won't as opposed to you just do it and then the person's dead and then you have to second guess yourself after it's too late and uh it it causes a lot of people to to freak out Right. And, and I know what you're saying, because I remember in the 80s, people like Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, were talking a lot about, for instance, a music. And that's when the censorship stuff was going on. And Tipper was an outlier. Very few Democrats were talking about it. It was mostly Republicans blaming music and movies and media for violence. And I completely opposed it then. And now I'm like, well, well, and so as an artist yourself, what do you think the role is of art in possibly affecting violence? I'll tell you who said something interesting about this is Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, who I knew peripherally a few years ago. Penn once said that the thing that's obvious is that art influences the method somewhat. People who read a, a, you know, a, a book, for instance, Mark David Chapman, he, the assassin of John Lennon, he was somewhat affected you know, by uh, Catcher in the Rye. I, I think he talked about that. So people will, will, let's say, read the Bible, and that might influence the way they commit violence, but it doesn't cause it because plenty of people read the Bible and don't hurt anybody. So what do you think, Ted, about the correspondence between art and violence? Do you think there is any or do you think that's all a bunch of right wing hooey? No, I think there's a connection. Look, if music didn't affect people's emotions, they wouldn't listen to it. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's we, we know that music, uh, you know, changes our mood. If I listen to a Chopin nocturne, 
I'm going to be in a decidedly different mood than if I listen to Judas Priest. I mean, that's just obvious. I, I, you know, I used to listen to, uh, on my daily commute in from uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan on the subway to Midtown about a half hour. Every morning I'd listen to a Walkman uh, <laughs> and listen to music on my headphones. And if I was listening to my preferred music, which was usually punk rock, um, I was decidedly more aggressive uh, than I was if I were listening to something else. And, you know, I remember uh, I would give people less room uh, when I'm trying to scoot by in a crowd. Um, I would, if someone was more, I was more likely to get involved in confrontations. Um, you know, it's the, there's a reason that for thousands of years, uh, various armies from all different cultures have empl have employed and deployed musicians in their midst to drive them forward. Uh, you know, they they wouldn't do that if music didn't affect people's emotions. Uh, you know, they, that would not be some a thing. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to say that you listen to gangster rap, you're going to go out and shoot somebody, but. It, you know, it's one of those things like it affects you. It could tip you. It, it's sort of part of a, you know, it's a perfect storm, I think, before someone goes out and shoots up a school. There's a lot of things going on. And, you know, the music thing is part of this giant package of stuff that could contribute to that mood and that, that might lead to that decision. But I wouldn't say it causes violence, but, you know, it's, it contributes to a violent tendency, maybe, would be a good way to put it. No, I, I think that's right. But, but, you know, what you just said was slightly complex. And the current media environment doesn't, you know, favor opinions with any nuance at all. So, also, by the way, Ted, just a guess, fan of The Clash? Oh, I love The Clash. Love them, of course. What American bands? Fugazi? Uh, that's that's more a second wave for me. Like more, I'm more like old school, like Ramones, Dead Kennedys, New York Dolls, that kind of stuff. Did you ever see Ramones? Oh, many times. Yeah, mm -hmm. I got yeah, to. I, saw uh, him on I, I got to know Johnny quite uh, quite well, actually. Really, he was conservative, right? He sure was. Yeah, yeah, he was a Republican. Um, the, the person who introduced us uh, was a liberal Democrat and assumed that we wouldn't get along because of our differing politics, but we got along great. Can I tell you a Johnny Ramone story since you know him? Uh, yeah. First off, I saw him on end of the century tour, 1979 in San Francisco and on their very last tour. But when I went to school in Westchester, my uh PE teacher had grown up with Johnny Ramone, and he was a drummer, and he was in a band with Johnny Ramone. And once, when they were playing a gig, he looked over, and at the time, Johnny was a bass player. Did you know that? He started as no. a bass player. Yeah, I guess I knew, I knew he could play bass. I didn't know that he'd played in a bass in a band. So my, my friend, the drummer, looked over, and Johnny Ramone was hitting someone in the face with the headstock <laughs> of his bass. He was hitting him in the face. And now I'll tell you Paul Harvey style 
the rest of the story, which is the most punk rock part. Do you know who Johnny Ramon was hitting in the face with his bass? No, I do not. His father. <laughs> and now was you know it? the rest of the story. Why? So pretty good Johnny Ramon story, right? <laughs> you know, even that even surprised me, even though I did I did know him. Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah. So yeah, again, but just a guess. I always like talking cultural stuff with you, Ted. I always like talking political stuff with you as well. Now, uh, but I think you know that. So we agree that the Democrats are facing disaster. Now, in the last couple couple minutes here. Do you think there's any possibility that this loss may make Democrats realize that they should allow intellectual diversity? Because what I mean by that is they don't allow the intellectual diversity. They did not support the most popular candidate they've had, Bernie Sanders, in about the past eight years, right? Do you think there's any possibility that this loss will make them wake up smell the coffee, and start supporting candidates who their base likes. Okay. None whatsoever, None whatsoever, because it hasn't happened so far. And there's a well-established pattern of what happens when Democrats get like what, uh, you know, Obama called, uh, you know, what was it, a drubbing, a thumping? Um, he had a famous expression for that, what the loss in the 2010 midterms. Um, no, what Democrats, corporate Democrats do always do the same thing. Uh, when they lose, they blame progressives. They say, oh, you know, you guys didn't vote for us in high enough numbers. Um, this is your fault. You guys weren't there for us. Even when, after the fact, like in 2016, it was proven that progressives and Bernie Sanders voters absolutely did turn out in the general election uh, to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, it just just wasn't true, um, and they've been. But they will blame progressives. They will never take the fall themselves. Uh, it's so bad that I don't even think that privately they admit internally. Wow, if we did something about getting the left wing base on board, we'd be okay. I don't even yeah. think they admit it to themselves. Now I think that's a very safe political prediction. I think you're exactly right, Ted. Ted Rawl, great conversation as usual. Have a great weekend. You too. Ted Rawl. We'll take a short break and we'll be back with more of the backstory. Back in the backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the news. I'm investigative reporter Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. So, I want to thank Ted Rawl. Always a good conversation with Ted. What do you say, Rod? Yeah, for sure. It was interesting. Uh, a lot of people just did used to disagree that video games had an effect, but. Uh, not for sure. It definitely had an effect on kids, and uh, it's still having it as we speak. Well, let's get to Boom, then I'll ask you about video games, Rod. Let's you and I talk about that a little bit. Because, you know, we'll, we'll, but let's talk about who's on the show. Once again, thank Ted Rawl for a great appearance. Always a great conversation. 
And coming up this hour is the great Carl Laren on the show. And it's always a good conversation with Carter as well. And he's a great guest to have before we head into the weekend. Rod, take us out with the last boom of the week. You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. So what I'll ask you, because I don't know the answer to this. Do you play video games, Rod? Uh, I only play like two. Yeah, like two. Uh, like a, like Madden and a, um, a team deathmatch game, kind of like a Call of Duty game. That's it. Yeah. Now, because I think that's important to establish before we talk about this. You know, I play video games a little. And I when my older kids live with me, I'm one of those old guys who likes watching video games because a lot of the video games now are so amazing graphically and but games like grand theft auto and particularly red dead redemption 2 have you ever seen red dead redemption 2 on an xbox or ps4 oh yeah lee they're, they're pretty much movies um if you go on youtube and you can like watch a story of a video game they have millions and millions of views so people can just literally watch someone play a video game they cut out the you know the junk, and it's 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 almost like a movie. Yeah, and and just watching Red Dead Redemption Two for people who don't know, don't know, it's a cowboy video game, but it tells a long story, and just riding your horse along a mountain range at sunset, in Red Dead Redemption Two, is absolutely gorgeous. The graphics are incredibly realistic, and things like the sunsets are incredibly realistic and beautiful. So just watching them. But, you know, the Grand Theft Auto games are also graphically great. They're set in cities based on New York or Oakland, but but they're equally graphically impressive. But that game encourages you to slap whores and to run people over. Right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, uh, you know, uh, the original Grand Theft Auto from back in the day was uh, third person, so it was like an eye in the sky. So it was, yes. It was, yeah, and I uh, used to play on the PC, and I think it started out in uh, in the UK. Um, and it's, you know, it's advanced to now where it's almost real life. You have a cell phone, you can email, you can buy cars. Uh, like you said, you can slap women around, uh, you can sleep with prostitutes, apartments, do drugs, all the stuff that you can do in real life. And, I, and I've seen it, you know. Uh, you can see videos of. The, I just saw a video yesterday of these. Looks like four or five kids trying to do a car, not a carjacking. They're trying to steal someone's car from the drive from the driveway, and they set and the owner set them up, and he makes them get naked and all this stuff to embarrass them. But it's kids. They look like thirteen, fourteen, but they've been playing these video games, especially during the lockdowns. Uh, you know, all the time that you know now they're they're living it because you know, uh, real life to them is it's it's uh, they can't distinguish from reality from a video game in real life now that they're it's intertwined and there's no there's no consequences in fact the games often reward you for doing things like that but if you slap a whore in grand theft auto and little i'm not making that up rod right that's something you can do you can take the prostitutes that you find and you can start hitting them right yeah and, and they yeah, do you, not say you lose instantly, right, Rod? Yeah, you, 
yeah, you could do even worse to them, Lee, and um, you can take steal their money afterwards, and you know all, all types of stuff. So, but yeah, it's you know uh, as I got older and I was playing these games, got more advanced. You know, I would uh, I would wince at hitting someone, an innocent person. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't want to hit as many innocent people <laughs> anymore, even though it's a video game. But <clears throat> you talk about these kids, uh, you know, they've been playing these games now, and it's so desensitized, like Call of Duty. I mean, you should hear the uh, the lobbies of these chats of these kids and how they talk. It's crazily. I mean, and me, I'm in my 30s, and I'm like, you know, these kids are, you know, they're talking like, you know, like like they'll they'll do it in real life to you just if you get if they get angry at you beating them in the game. You know, it's it's, it's wild. Yes, and and we've talked about before when people were being swatted, which is swatting is when you call the cops on someone you don't like and pretend to be them. For instance, if Rod was mad at me, he might call the cops and say, hey, this is Lee Strahan, and give my address in Sioux Falls and say, uh, you know, I'm about to kill myself, and I've got a gun. And the and he's making up. Rod would never do that to me, by the way, because he might get you in trouble at work, Rod. So I would not advise that. But if he did, the cops don't know. So they go over to my apartment, guns blazing, right? When the swattings were happening, people, you pointed out, Rod, that people do that to other people they're playing video games against. So we know that video games literally lead to direct threats of violence and revenge against people, right, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think you talked about that. Yeah, there's there's you can see them online. Uh, people, you know, some of these people who stream and make money, you know, they get they get money and they buy things, you know, and they flaunt some stuff they buy, but they also arm themselves. And you know, if you send in a SWAT team, it kicks down your door, and you know, you've been flaunting stuff that you own that you've been acquiring as you become a popular streamer. You know, you're gonna think someone's coming in to rob you, and you've seen some of these people get killed in these swattings. So it's it's very dangerous, and it's just over a video game. It's just you know, or popularity. Like you know, I don't like you, Lee, because you're more popular than me. So I'm gonna send police to embarrass you on your live stream. By the way, Rod, no one says I'm more popular than you. There's no way. So just you know, don't swat me. So let me say this too: I'm not opposed to video games. In fact. I'm developing video games. I like video games, but there are some consequences to them. And I think as a person, you know, if anyone watches the the video stream, all the virtual set stuff you see, I did in Unreal Engine. And it's Unreal Engine is a game engine. And it's part of developing video games, something I'm it's hard for me to do after I strokes, but it's obviously still possible. You see, I'm able to put out custom graphics every day. And it's harder for me with my eyesight affected, but I'm capable of doing it. So I'm in favor of video games that actually, if the video games, what would you think of this, Rod? Is if you killed an innocent person, you instantly lost. In other words, they did not incentivize in any way hurting innocent people. Do you think that might affect things in a positive way? What would you think of that, Rod? 
Um, some some games already have that. Uh, already have that built in, especially if it's like a story. Uh, and older games as well. You know, um, usually you just, you know you're killing the bad guy, just the bad guy, not to kill innocent people. You know, Grand Theft Auto and a few other games have uh, kind of revolutionized that of uh, killing NPCs, non-playable characters who are just you know walking around, standing around, and whatnot. But uh, you know, I, I also I'm I'm right there with you too, Lee. I'm uh, uh, torn about it, but at the same time, I think it's when you just leave children at their own devices and here, go play this video game, and you, there's never someone over your shoulder will like you know uh, watching and seeing what, what, what's the details of this video game, what's happening in these lobbies and the people you're chatting with because there's, there's people of all ages from all over the country, all over the world. So you know what I mean? You're just it's kind of like the AOL chat rooms from back in the day when the internet the internet was uh, first developed. You know. Start developing and stuff, Lee. I mean, there's there's all kinds of people in those AOL chat rooms. You know, some innocent, some uh, you know perverts looking for people as well. Well, that's a consistent theme with you, Rod. If I if I will sum it up, you're consistently when you look at the violence, you really think a lot of it is a parent's responsibility, don't you? Yeah, Lee. One of my friends, uh, we went to high school together, and we've been friends for like 16 years now. He coaches his son in football. And also, you know, I watch Jason Whitlock. He's on the Blaze. He's a he's actually a really good journalist. He's uh, ethical, and you know, he's actual. He's an actual journalist. And there's a couple of coaches I've watched on YouTube, and everyone's coming to the same consensusly. And you know, I know I know it might come off a certain way, and people might uh, react to it. But a lot of people are blaming mothers, uh, and, they, and but. Uh, not specifically just women itself, but also men who are kind of taking on female tendencies and are just allowing children to, you know, not rearing their children. And you know, as we see, you know, look at look at the, look at the crime wave that we have all over the country, and it's mostly, you know, a, a good percent of it is just kids, like 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids, uh, you know, again playing out like Grand Theft Auto, just sticking a gun in your face, get out the car, maybe have a joyride, and I'll leave this car wherever, and I'll go back to mom's, grandmom's, or wherever. And so, again, I'm not a person who's opposed to this. I wouldn't make them, I don't believe censorship's the issue. But I believe that they have an effect because it's obvious. But let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. Tarif from Louisiana, what's on your mind? Thanks for waiting, Tarif. Thank you all for um, taking my call. Before I get my two comments, first I gotta say, uh, say free Julian Assange. Um, I have to say this. I remember I had um, I had went to Central America, and I had um, a psychedelic drug. It was called Ebola. It's nothing like it's nothing like that on the planet. And what that does, it puts you in contact with your conscious. So with these children that's 12, 13, 14 years old that's bugging off behind these games and doing all these crimes or misbehaving in school, if and you give them, if you would have some type of law or some type of program with people that's drug addicts too, that can go through a certain program, they give them little bits of their emboga, then that's going to change their mindset. It's not going to reprogram them, but it's going to make them more in tune with themselves. You know what I'm saying? Because emboga is like, when you take it, it puts, it's like having a thousand grandmothers in your head, basically criticizing you all at once. Ain't nothing nice. It'll make you feel good. <laughs> it make you say, hey, you need to get your life in order. Okay, here you go to my comments. Um, so thank, that it, it's a, a very interesting commentary. Thanks for the call. So psychedelics 
are interesting topic that Rod, I would like to, there's a couple of authors who've written good books on psychedelics. Here's one thing that I know about the psychedelic experience. People who've taken mushrooms or acid, be, you know, some people just do it for fun. And low doses of mushrooms, for instance, can be done recreationally. But what Terrence McKenna referred to as heroic doses, high doses of mushrooms or high doses of psychedelics, they do, no matter what the circumstance, they make you confront death. They make you deal with death. Because if you take enough psychedelics, you will feel like you're going to die. Now, that may not sound fun, and it's not fun. I wouldn't use the word fun to describe it, but it can lead to a growth experience because confronting your own mortality can have a profound effect on a person's psychology. So, Rod, without, uh, I'll just, you can say whatever you want to say about that. I'm not asking you to confess anything, but I've done psychedelics. And oh, yeah, no, I've, you know, we talked about it before. Yeah, I've done, I've done mushroom, I've done acid. First time I did acid was with a girl I used to date. So that was a, that was a good, <laughs> that was a good and also bad time. Cause, right. You know, um, but yeah, no, it, it is, you know, like I said before, it's really hard to explain. It's, to me, I, I kind of uh, compare it to a slinky, you know, the, that old stupid toy you could just put on the stairs and it would roll down the stairs. But if you like, pull it, it, you can see how, you know, how long the slink is. And that's kind of what your brains, our brains from just years of stress and school and just life in general, it kind of, when you do it for the first time, how I felt, it's kind of like the, you pull that slinky apart. It's kind of like a stress reliever. But like you said, you also, uh, depending what wave, because to me it's like four or five waves you go through, uh, or if you're peaking or whatnot, you like you said, you do feel like you might die. So it does kind of put you in a perspective, uh, perspective. Uh, you know, you kind of let things more uh, more things that make you upset kind of let it go. And a lot of it, of course, has to do with uh, where you are, what they call place, and who you're with. the The setting that you take psychedelics in is very important. Would you agree with that, Rod? Oh yeah, for sure. I would not. <laughs> I definitely would not uh, do uh, do it in a public place or a place that's not home. I, I would say do it at home your first uh, couple times or somewhere you really trust. Because if, you, if you're not home or something like that, you know, uh, you, could really, you could really freak out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, especially, especially you start seeing things. Uh, you know, uh, I had a cousin. He's, my cousin was a tattoo artist. I remember the first time he, he did it and he called me and told me about it. He was at a tattoo convention. And he said he, <laughs> he looked in the mirror and his face was melting. So, you know... <laughs> But he was doing it to have a good time. But, you know, if you're not in the right or surrounded by the right people, it could be a, a you know, psychotic event. And uh, although I'll say the reason Grateful Dead concerts worked out is a lot of people were on psychedelics. And the Grateful Dead, they designed the concerts in many ways, the sound and the lighting. And there's a drum solo and Grateful Dead shows. It comes about three quarters way through the through the thing. And it's a drum solo where they're playing not only a traditional drum set, but also they bring these gigantic drums out. Some of the Japanese ones and also some of the uh, 
uh, Latin percussion of big drums and listening to that drum solo when you're peaking. The reason it's three quarters of the way through is it's designed to go along with when people are peaking. And that drum solo is pretty amazing. I know you've never been to a dead concert, Rod, but does am I describing it in a way that makes some sense? Oh yeah, for sure, Lee. Uh, you know, from people who I know who are like, uh, I don't, I don't know anybody who's an avid user because you know, you if, you if you you could lose yourself if you're doing psychedelics all the time. But people I know who have been who have done it over the years, they're like, you know, just chill out and listen to some music, maybe have a drink or have a smoke, and just you know, <laughs> let the good times roll. So That's exactly I, I can, right. Yeah. So I can I can imagine at a concert where everyone else is going through the same thing. It's like, I, I'm pretty sure you like you talk about it all the time. So it's, it's something you can't forget. There's a great interview with George Harrison from the Beatles, and he was talking about taking psychedelics. And he said, you only need to take psychedelics once. And the person interviewing him said, so you've only taken them once? And he said, no, I've taken them a lot, but I only need to once. And that's kind of my view. Uh, some people, obviously, I, I don't think it's the kind of thing that you should take, like, as a diet. You don't take them every weekend. But, you know, more as medicine, something that you take once in a while. And it, it helps clear a lot of cobwebs out of your brain. And I don't know how else to put it. You know, one of the things I realized uh, on psychedelics very early on was just how much of what we're told is not true. And I had that experience profoundly. I was thinking about and how much people buy into stuff that's not true. And let's turn from psychedelics to people who I can't excuse because they're on acid. The media, the media right now is trying to say, have you heard what the media is saying about the Kursan offensive? And the dam we talked to Mark Sabora about that might be blown up and flood the city of Kherson, which is part of Russia now. They voted to join Russia. So have you heard what the media is saying about blowing up that dam? Uh, not specifically that, Lee. I, uh, what I was seeing last night and this morning, they were more talking about the, uh, the blackouts that are coming and that they're, they're telling people to conserve energy in Ukraine. But I, I haven't been seeing specifics on Kersan. Well, Zelensky said it, and the media is repeating it. Guess what Zelensky said. Go on, guess. Just what you know about what Zelensky always does. His MO is very clear. Guess who he says is going to blow up the dam? Let me, let me guess, Lee. He said the Russians are going to blow it up. That's right. The Russians. He said Putin. Now think about that. It is a, blowing up the dam would flood the city and kill a lot of residents who just voted to be part of Russia. So why would Putin possibly do that? I mean, you know, it'd be like you ask a girl out and she says, OK, and you shoot her. You follow me? It makes no sense whatsoever. He would mass murder people who are now part of Russia. He's but Ted Bundy. Yeah, he's Ted Bundy. Lee. They're trying to make him out like he's Ted Bundy, like he's some type of psychotic individual. Right. And, and, and the media repeats like what Zelensky is saying is reasonable. 
But I, I heard that on the news today on DW, the German propaganda network. They repeated, Zelensky says the Russians, and, and look 100% clear, what Zelensky is doing is setting up a false flag. Because when he lobs missiles at the dam, a lot of people are going to go, see, Putin did it. Zelensky was right. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, unfortunately, um, I, I agree with you. You know, we were talking about uh, uh, realizing that people believe these lies. Yeah, people just, you know, just like uh, human drones, they're going to be like, well, yeah, you know, you know, Putin did it. You know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a maniac who wants to take over the world. Yes. And if, if you make him out to be a maniac, which there's no evidence of, Putin, I would say, shows tremendous restraint, patience. I, and that's my take. Do you get the same idea about Putin that I get, Rod? Yeah, a little bit too much restraint, Lee. You know, we talk about this going on eight, nine years with uh, with Ukraine and the Donbass region, I would say. Uh, but, I, I, you know, luckily he actually did take his time in a, in a, in a, I guess in a way because uh, if in a, a different American administration, he would have a, a hot war immediately. So in a way, I guess, he, you know, like him taking his time worked out, way, worked out well. And they never ask a question. For instance, you know, when Nord Stream was sabotaged by a terrorist attack and they blamed Russia on it. I, the question I ask is, and, and we'll get to calls in one sec. Ingrid, hold on one sec. Uh, they didn't ask the logical question. If Putin wanted to destroy Nord Stream, why go to Sweden to do it? So if Putin wanted to kill people in Kherson, why not just order troops to put people up against a wall? Why do a bank shot? Why go through the trickiness of destroying a dam to drown them? If he wanted to drown people in Kherson, he could have Russian soldiers grab people and stuff their heads in a sink. And if he likes drowning his way of killing people. Does it make sense, Rod? It's the most illogical thing in the world, even if you accept their premise. You see what I'm saying? Lee, you know, you, you talk too concise and too detailed. You know, people want it in a, in a, in a TikTok. <laughs> they, want it, they want all this conde condensed in a TikTok video where maybe with a little bit of music and a dance. That's where I'm. Well, that's kind of what I'm convinced uh, where we're going. If you can't do, if you can't give it to me in about a minute and twenty seconds and entertain me, I'm just going to believe whatever the narrative is. And uh, so we'll talk about that afterwards. But I want to get to Ingrid. Two o two five two one thirteen twenty. Ingrid from D.C. Thanks for waiting. What's on your mind? Well, they're talking about the dam on mainstream media, and on the radio they're saying Shoigu and. Austin spoke to each other today for the first time in many months, and that Austin warned Shoigu that the Russians should not destroy the dam. That's what they're saying. And also today, the Swedes have announced they have evidence, maybe it's photographs of a unexploded drone bomb at the site of the North, North Stream, the pipelines. So... You know, they should be able to determine whose bomb it is. That's obviously why they're not talking about it. And they didn't mention whose bomb it was? No, definitely. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I doubt they will. I mean. No, I, I hadn't heard that about Lloyd Austin warning Shogu not to launch missiles. And 
imagine what the Russians think of us. Because Russia knows who's planning. By the way, I would say, you know, the U.S. is on Ukraine's side, obviously. How does it help Ukraine to say they should say, yeah, we're going to bomb it. We're trying to take back Kherson. I don't see how it helps Ukraine in any way to try to blame Russia for that. They could say, so what? We're going to do that. We're trying to take Kherson and you invaded our country. How do you think? I mean, what must be going through? You can't know, obviously, Ingrid. But think about how many we must look to Russia. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, the great Carter Laird to close out the week on The Backstory. backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, the host of Unsafe Space, the podcast. Now, Carter, by the way, his name is Carter Laren. Carter, welcome to the show. Good to speak with you, Lee. How you doing? Great to have you. Now, explain to people, because Unsafe Space is a podcast, but it's also a website, correct? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the truth is we're going through a little bit of an identity crisis. It started as a podcast several years ago, uh, eventually turned into something that has had a lot of different shows all on a YouTube channel and um, now kind of trying to figure out exactly what the best way we want to move forward is because, frankly, Lee, I don't enjoy YouTube celebrity that 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 whole I don't enjoy that scene. It's it's not my scene. We have other hosts that do enjoy it, but I've never been a you know the kind of guy. I've got I've got a voice for uh, writing and a face for radio. So there you go. Well, no, no. So first off, I, I think you're too hard on yourself. Second off, I think you are a good host, and I think. But what don't you like? But you you said. YouTube celebrity. What don't you like about it, if you don't mind saying? Well, uh, you know, generally, um, truth and in-depth discussion is not what wins. What wins is uh, clickbait, drama, um, hyperbole, and entertainment. And I've, you know, I've even noticed on some of our shows, if I, if I. She's a particular I, – I, there's some formulas that I know will work better. I just don't want to use them because I'm uninterested in that. I'm interested in serious conversations, and I don't think – I'm not convinced that YouTube is the place to have them. So uh, there's there are other shows other than the one that I do on Unsafe Space, and, and they're, they're going, and mine's still going. I'm just – I'm in a – I'm confessing to the audience right now that I'm in a little bit of a – an internal crisis trying to figure out what what's the best contribution I can make towards saving Western civilization, and is it really trying to tap dance on YouTube and get clicks? Well, that is a great answer, and I empathize with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, personally, what I've done, you know, we had Ted Roll on the first hour, and Ted and I 
talked about everything from the, the Ramones to uh, to the Texas school shooting that happened in the 60s to some politics. And so, you know, Rod and I spent a good deal of time talking about psychedelics this hour. So I moved off just trying to talk about politics. And when you say you know what works, for instance, I know that if I were to do a show and be in the chat room and talk about Marxist Democrats, a lot of people would respond to that. And if I got a little angry about them and called them idiots, it would go well. But I don't <laughs> find that. No, you you know what I'm you're, you're, about. You're, you're no, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. If you do a – you can watch Super Chats on YouTube. If you do a rant and um, you have a lot of uh, clever vituperations to call your political opponents, you get – and you know, and a bunch of super chats, um, which is for those who don't know, is money basically from from people watching YouTube. Uh, you know, if I I did a video that I titled "Hair Biden" and I had that picture of Biden, uh, you know, that speech that he gave that that was uh, aesthetically quite fascist. I think you and I even talked about it with the, the red background and all that kind of stuff. And the oh, whole show was his hands. His his hands were up <laughs> like like this, right? Uh, yeah, I, they were up. They hands. were up in fists. Yeah, double fisted, uh, kind of thing. So that I mean, that did well. People loved it. It was particularly political. But then when I talk about things that matter really a lot to me, for example, this Wednesday I spoke about uh, parenting and the importance of having children and how the culture war is a generational issue. And I, you know, largely it fell on deaf ears. People didn't care, or people were angry at me that I suggested, "How dare you suggest people have children?" So it's just. People don't want to actually hear uh, real discussion. They don't want to have – in general, they don't want to have real discussions on platforms like YouTube. They more want to be entertained. They want to hear their own values uh, amplified in witty ways that they can share online. Uh, I don't have charisma. Uh, that's So it's it's kind of this uphill battle. I care very much about the cultural war. I care very much about the, the future for my children. I care very much about – um, making a contribution, but I'm really starting to scratch my head and wonder, is this really the right path for me personally? I think if I were a good looking guy like you, Lee, maybe sure. But for me, I, it doesn't work that well. So first off, I, I feel like you're being cruel to me. So I'm teasing you. I'm in, teasing the, you. <laughs> in the sense, I'll tell you a Native American joke. This is a joke that Native Americans used to do. If uh, they captured you and they give you a name like Run Slow, right? So let's say okay. they capture you and you're a slow runner. They would call you, you know, they use those kind of names like Dances with Bears or whatever. They'd call you Run Slow. And if you got pissed about it, do you know what they do? They'd say, okay, we'll call you Runs Fast. Now, think about that. <laughs> You you still run slow, but your name is runs fast, and right. that's a great joke. So in other words, calling me good looking I, is I feel your way of calling me runs fast. But, but, uh, <laughs> well, there was no malice intended, I'll, unlike no, the Native I'll, Americans. I'll, I'm sure. I'll hide my hurt. So Carter, <laughs> this leads to a philosophical question. Uh, I'm going to make a statement 
that on its face, a lot of people won't like, and they will disagree with. But I think it's inarguable factually. We live in an era today, people have more access to truth than ever. People have more access to truth about the way the world works than ever. But most people choose not to exercise it. They don't actually want the truth. They want confirmation bias, which is in a way what you're talking about. So I'm saying, don't blame yourself. It's people. And there's something about human nature. And it's when you put it that way, that it's human nature, it's pretty obvious. People don't want to question their core beliefs because like doing acid, questioning your core beliefs is something you can't do every day. Does that make any sense at all, Carter? Yeah, uh, and I think this is why I think people who care about these issues and think about them flirt with misanthropy when they're in bad moods because um, it does sometimes seem like the human race just doesn't care about being subject to authoritarian, authoritarian governments and they want to be sheep and, uh, you know, what's the point? Uh, the flip side is you got to re remind yourself that it's not everyone. And there are there's a great potential among people and there are brilliant, wonderful people who don't want that. And frankly, who are responsible for most of the, the great things throughout history. These are the independent minds who bucked the trend and they weren't the sheep. And so uh, those are the people that kind of keep me caring rather than throwing in the towel. But I, but I will say it. It here. If you want to, here's a controversial statement that people will get angry about and disagree with. When I'm when I'm feeling that way, when I'm feeling in the the misanthropic way about humans, I completely understand the perspective of the elites from the World Economic Forum, and and I think to myself, they're looking out at humanity and they're seeing a large percentage of sheep who just want to be directed, and they're seeing that what's really happening here, I mean, you were talking about Putin in the US earlier, this is what's really going on, is this is a battle between uh, titans of influence. This is, you know, one set of elites knows how to convince sheep to do uh, one thing, and another set knows the same skill set, and they're trying to convince the sheep of something else. And it's really not about any of the desires of the sheep, it's about who's better at manipulating the masses. And, you know, when when you look at it like that, you think to yourself, well, it's certainly evil what the World Economic Forum is doing, but I get why I get why a a misanthropic malcontent billionaire would just throw his hat in that circle and say, screw it. If someone's gonna control these people, it might as well be me. Um and I've again, that's not how I think about this. I'm I'm expressing a sentiment when I am feeling hopeless, which I am not all the time. And and certainly as I said earlier, it's, you know, it's, I don't think it's the right way to be, but I, I can sympathize with it from time to time. Yeah, no, and I understand what you're saying, but I think that, you know, the problem with that, of course, is that if you try to do that, for instance, if Putin said to himself, you know, the problem, I need you to do a hip hop song that people like, you know, I, I need to dress Nazir. If Putin was trying to make the case by that, it would never work. Because the people who like Putin and who agree with him, and I'd say when you see someone like Jordan Peterson, who did not get famous due to a sex tape or a hip hop song or whatever, 
Yep. Right. But you see what I'm saying? Some people make you feel right. better about the world. And Jordan Peterson has succeeded largely because he's smart and intellectual and talks like it. He doesn't pretend to be dopey. Do you agree? Yes. And it, yes. And I, and that's where you get hope from. Right. You you look at people like Jordan Peterson and, and others and you look at people who um, really do pay attention to them and you think, oh, it's not everyone. There are there actually is a large but largely silent percentage of the population that recognizes that they don't want to be animals on the tax farm. They don't want authoritarianism and they feel just as stuck as you do by the insanity that we're all subject to. And once you realize that, uh, then it no longer feels like you're fighting for, uh, for nothing. And you can kind of go back into the trenches and just ignore, um, you know, ignore the noise. Now we have a clip. So this is a clip. I've not heard this one yet, but uh, Rod, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Lee. Okay, can you tell us what the clip is about? It's about uh, uh, the government has been pressuring Amazon to uh, ban books, um, one of them being uh, Daria Dugina's father. His books have been banned from Amazon. That's amazing, including his book, the third political theory, which is the the fourth political theory, actually, which is translated by our great friend Mark Sloboda. So let's play this clip. Hit it. If you go on Amazon.com and you remember this started as a bookstore, an online bookstore. It's the biggest bookstore in the world. They have everything. There's nothing you can't find on Amazon, including used books. So if you were to go onto Amazon to read books by a man who is in the news and whose ideas are directly bearing on world events, you look for a guy called Alexander Dugin. Dugin is one of Russia's most famous authors and political philosophers. He doesn't work for the government. He doesn't work for Vladimir Putin. He's just a philosopher. So if you're interested in, like, what are they thinking over there, you would search Dugin's author page on Amazon, but you would not find any results. Really? Kind of a big author to be left off Amazon. So we reach out to Amazon to ask, why can't we find any books by this guy? And then we realized because he's been banned from Amazon. So then we asked Amazon for a list of all books and authors who've been banned from their platform. And they wouldn't give it to us. So we went back and forth, back and forth, and finally Amazon provided a six-word response. And we're quoting, Amazon complies with all applicable laws. Hmm, applicable laws. Well, in the United States, there are no laws against publishing books because we have the First Amendment. The government can never, under any circumstances, censor any book, period or anything that you have to say, period. Because that's the core of our Bill of Rights. Then we learned that Amazon and the Justice Department were ignoring our Bill of Rights. Amazon apparently based this decision on a Treasury Department designation concerning, quote, disinformation. And that designation applies not only to Dugin, but also to his family, though not to his daughter, who was murdered recently by the Ukrainian government, but we're not allowed to say that. What did she do wrong? Well, I guess she said the wrong thing, but that's cool because they're fighting for freedom. But that's not the point. The point is, in our country, which is very different from Ukraine, we're allowed to read whatever we want. But we can't now because the Biden administration is demanding that the biggest bookseller in the world censor books that they disagree with. And Amazon complies without asking any questions. Now, this is as clear a violation as the First Amendment as you could concoct in a law school class. So then we reach out to the Treasury Department. Did this really happen? Yeah, it did. 
they essentially confirmed it. Quote, we don't comment on possible enforcement matters, but the Treasury Department continues to vigorously enforce Russia-related sanctions. Oh, really? There is no legal basis for ever censoring any book if you're the U.S. government. That is not allowed. That's the main thing that's not allowed in this country, period. We don't care who wrote the book. You're allowed to read it. You can read any book you want. You're an American. And if you cease to be able to read any book you want, it doesn't matter if you're an American because you're just a serf. Well, Amazon has refused to provide us with a list of the other books they are banning, but they clearly are banning a lot of different books. And why can't we know what those books are? We're going to continue to look into this. And if there are any legal challenges to the book banning, which is one click from book burning, we hope there are legal challenges. We'll let you know about those as well. Now, I'll let him know about one such book that's banned by Amazon. We've had the offer on many times. The book is by Alex Craner and is about Bill Browder. Is about American who renounces citizenship to England. Spokesman for the Magnitsky Act. Alex Craner's book on Bill Browder was banned by Amazon. And it was banned due to a letter from a State Department official, Jonathan Weiner. That's one example of what he's talking about. But once again, proving that Tucker Carlson is, in my opinion, a national treasure and the most important mainstream journalist, I'm going to say, of my generation. Do you agree with that designation? And what do you think of what Tucker had to say, Carter Laren? Yeah, I do agree with that designation. I mean, you know, from my recollection, I haven't sat down and, and written all the, the mainstream anchors, news anchors uh, that I've experienced in my life. But yes, I would, uh, off the top of my head, I think he's definitely the most uh, influential because he's the only one, he's the most important because he's the only one talking about this kind of stuff. I mean, that was a book you recommended that I read a few weeks ago. It's on my list. So I guess I'm going to have to buy it from somewhere other than Amazon. But, um, you know, this is the kind of thing, Lee, I think you and I have spoken to this before. Uh, or about this before, a lot of people view this uh, this idea of a government censorship as something that's very straightforward, like in um, Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's uh, science fiction novel, where the government literally burns books. Um, you, you, you're not allowed to have books. They're, they're very direct and involved. And people think, well, the government is not allowed to show up and force you to not sell a book. But that's not really how any of this works. And the analogy that I think we've used on this show before even was if if Tony Soprano shows up at your house and says, gee, Lee, it will be nice if you stopped doing X, Y, and Z, he doesn't have to threaten you. Uh, you automatically know that there's an implied threat there. So if the Treasury Department, uh, the, the U.S. Treasury shows up and says, hey, you know, uh, you probably shouldn't sell these books. As a as a just purely pragmatic businessman, you kind of know you're not supposed to sell those books. You don't want to be on their bad side. It's the same reason Zuckerberg responded when the FBI said, hey, uh, there's some Russian disinformation, they called it, which was obviously not disinformation. It was the Hunter Biden laptop story. There's some Russian disinformation going around. You probably shouldn't publish it. Facebook was under no legal obligation to do that, but he, he they knew damn well. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. They knew darn well that they they should they should be listening if they didn't want to 
be on the wrong end of the gun of the government. And Amazon knows that as well, even if maybe Amazon might have done it anyway, knowing Amazon. Uh, but that's mostly how the censorship works. It's 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 implication. It's innuendo. It's a knowledge that, you know what, if you want that contract or you want to not have the SEC on your butt or you want the Treasury to leave you alone or you want to you know, you want to be able to do your business uh, without harassment from this organization or that organization from the U.S. government, then just play ball. Uh, and that's how censorship is accomplished now. And uh, it's much more insidious than the fictitious, the fictitious kind that people think of when they think about censorship. Yeah. Now, I'm not recommending this business, but I am telling you where you can read the book. There's a service called Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D. They do the cute high-tech thing of let's not use all the vowels. Does that make sense, Carr? Have you seen Scribd? They could, yeah, they couldn't get the domain name or something, probably. Who knows? Right. And so Scribd allows you to, I think it's 10 or 15 bucks a month, you have access to all the books that they have there. And they have Alexander Dugan's books, both in written form and in audiobooks, including the fourth political theory. So you can get Dugan's books still. And this is why I say this is there's never been a, a better time because if you can't get it on Amazon and I I'm not saying this to say I think someone needs to sue the government. I think some lawyer like Harmeet Dillon needs to take these First Amendment issues seriously and sue the government and say, essentially, what they're doing by even asking Amazon to take down books is a violation of the First Amendment. But I am saying that you can still get Dugan's books. It's not the case that you just can't get them in the U.S. And that's one place you can get a lot of his books for a fairly low price. So I'm not saying you, you also have to hunt down bookstores, you know, and pay a hundred bucks for a book on eBay or something like that. But it goes to my point that there's never been a better time. Now, a lot of people, their reaction should be, well, I'm going to go read his books now. I'm going to see what the government's censoring. Because I think if you read his books, anyone who read his books, you'd go, why did the government ban this? Because his books are very intellectual and they're talking about and there's no misinformation. It's a philosophical theory. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, you know in other words, is Schopenhauer, you and I don't agree with him as a philosopher, but it's not disinformation. Is Immanuel Kant providing disinformation do you do you see what i'm saying i mean i i agree with you i think it's bad arguments but not disinformation but i will also say lee even if it were disinformation the government has no right to censor it disinformation is protected speech i don't i don't do understand what? like that because otherwise you need someone at the government deciding what is true and false and that's exactly what you don't want and also by the way uh, many people would say the Bible is disinformation, and it clearly contains statements that cannot be verified factually. 
Would you agree True, with you that? could take the Bible. Yeah, you could certainly, if you wanted to present the Bible as disinformation, you could easily take uh, statements. I mean, I'm just thinking about right away, right in Genesis. You could take statements about the creation of the earth, and you could say this, you could take it at face value, not metaphorically, and you could say, this is factually incorrect about the the creation of the earth. Therefore, this entire book is misinformation. Therefore, it should be banned. That's that would be very easy to do given these standards. We we can't have we can't have the standard of well the government's not allowed to ban anything unless unless it's misinformation or disinformation. Um, and I'm glad you brought this up, Lee. But the the best advertisement I could possibly think of for. Uh, this Alexander Dugan book is – it was banned from Amazon. I mean that makes me want to read it. It's why I read The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Uh, I'm not into magical realism, but hey, it got him in a lot of trouble, got him stabbed recently. I want to know why. So that's why I read it, and it's a its a great reason to read a book. And I, I – there was a period about 20 years ago or so when I was very much into reading books you weren't supposed to read. And some of them I read, for instance, a book called – the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries, I'd heard, is a, is a violent, white, right, uh, I'll call it right wing, but white supremacist book. The Turner Diaries is a violent white supremacist book. And I read it. And you know what? It is. I would not recommend anybody read it for, you know, learning stuff. It was an inspiration in part for the Oklahoma City bombing. But you know what? I read the book and I didn't agree with it. There's no book I found that when you read it, you mystically, your eyes glaze over and roll back in your head, David Cronenberg style. And have you ever read a book that when you read it, you magically agreed with it, Carter? <laughs> no. And, and you know, and you know, Lee, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, Double down on your your. I've not read the Turner Diaries, but I'm going to double down on that uh, idea. I've intentionally read the manifestos of some of the mass shooters lately, and 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 in fact, it's prompted me to write. I've written articles about why their philosophies were, um, where they were getting their ideas from, where there was because often there's a grain of truth that's then infused with a bunch of. Um, lies and or um, bad conclusions. So I'm trying to tease out like, here's what's true. Here's what they got wrong. This is how you can be careful when you're examining these issues and, and avoid falling victim to this really violent, horrible ideology. And But in order to do that, I had to be able to read what their arguments actually were. And, and in one of the cases, I think it was the New Zealand Christchurch shooter one, it was hard to get because everyone was trying to ban it. They were taking it down from every website, and I, I really just wanted to understand what's the argument here, so so I can preemptively try and stop other young men from taking these ideas and and coming to the same bad conclusions. Right now, now, and in fact, we had someone calling the show recently, and they said I started listening to Sputnik and RT because I want to see what the BS was. I wanted to listen to Russian propaganda. And sure enough, because it was listening to me, I tell people, don't take my word for anything. So if someone's listening to this show and they call in and they say, no, I think there is proof Russia attacked Nord Stream 2. I'd want to hear it. 
And I have people all the time calling. And he said, because he started listening to RT and Sputnik, he realized that it was right. They were saying things that were factually provable. And I think that's what they're afraid of. Now, Carter, in the last couple of minutes we got here, we were talking with Ted Rawl about the influence that art, including video games, including books, including music, what the kids call hippie hop music. I'm not saying no kids call it that, by the way. But uh, what do you think is the possible correlation between people's actions? Because I do think it's clear some people are not compelled to commit violent acts, but are influenced somewhat. What's your take on the correlation between art and violent behavior, for instance, Carter? Wow, what a what a big question, Lee. Um, well, we do know that just just scientifically and genetically, like genes, there, there is uh, epigenetics. So genes do get activated through through uh, trans- transcription functions, which basically is a fancy way of saying your environment can't influence you. So we do know that. Uh, I think, you know, when I look at art, the way I think of the way I think of a lot of art is it reflects a subculture. Um, so. I don't think, you know, a random artist probably can't just, uh, you know, become famous uh, if the subculture surrounding the industry for which that artist is, is a member doesn't support the, the basic ideology. So in other words, uh, you know, you probably it would be difficult to, to have uh, I, Ayn Rand be writing movies in Hollywood right now. Uh, but um, but what art does do is normalize the the culture uh, that subculture, it it normalizes that subculture. Really, you can think of it as it helps metastasize that subculture into the the mainstream, the bloodstream of mainstream culture. And uh, and then then I think it does have an influence. So um, I view, I don't view it as, you know, pure. It, it's not, it's not an unmitigated influence. It it's limited in what it can do. But I I do think it absolutely influences the culture and. Uh, you know, I don't I'm not I wouldn't say it causes problems, but it certainly could exacerbate them. So, Carter, great answer. And as usual, it's always a great conversation. And don't be so hard on yourself, Carter. It's not you. It's them. I mean that about the world. <laughs> so, Carter, Laren, thanks so much. Thank you, Lee. Have a good one. Have a great weekend. And thanks to Ted Rawl. Great show today, Rod. And thanks for all your work. And thanks to Command Central. Thanks for your work. We'll be back on Monday on the show that brings you a wider variety of opinions. This is The Backstory. Backstory.